The Bible reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning at verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted... He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. This is the word of God. I might just start by praying, so would you pray with me? Father, thank you that your word is is sharp, um, like a double-edged sword, and that it is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. And we ask that you would be doing that this morning. Amen. Uh, when I was nine years old, uh, September 2000, I'm sure many of you will remember this, uh, the Sydney Olympics were happening, um, and there are very fond memories I have of the Sydney Olympics. I was, like I said, nine, and I got to attend some of the events. Um, some of you might not have even been born yet, but you should be at Toasties, so what are you doing in here? Um, but there's, there, I think you guys would remember Kathy, Kathy Freeman winning the gold medal. Uh, you'd remember Ian Thorpe winning all of those gold medals and seeing him wear them all at once. That was That was a warming scene. There is one thing that I remember very well, uh, which was not a pleasant memory. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, uh, but Jane Savelle, she was the race walker uh, in the, do you remember this? In the the 20-kilometer race walk that she was in, she was 200 meters from the finishing line, and she was several hundred meters ahead of her competitors. She was the Aussie. She was going to take the gold. It was going to happen. And then this if it comes up on the screen, which hopefully it will, but it doesn't look like it will. Oh, that's sad. 
um, yeah, she, uh, she was disqualified. There we go. 200 meters from the finishing line, she was disqualified. And it was just so gut-wrenching. Uh, it was a third um, penalty that she got because she was lifting her leg or she wasn't uh, using the correct gait as you, you're meant to do in walking. And she was disqualified. And it was devastating to be watching that. And I still remember that. And I was talking to my wife earlier in the week and I, was, I said to her, do you remember that girl? And she said, yeah, I remember. I, I, she knew what, she was, what I was going to say before it even, I even said it because it was such a memorable and terrible thing to happen. She was going to win the gold and she found herself disqualified. She found herself out of the race. Uh, it's, it's really sad when somebody gets disqualified. It is even more sad when somebody finds themselves out of the Christian race. When they find themselves having fallen out of the race. And this passage that we're reading this morning, this is a warning for us. That this could be us. We could find ourselves fallen out of the race. And so we come to this passage this morning and we ask ourselves, how do we avoid falling out of the Christian race? How do we avoid falling out of the Christian race? So if you've got your Bible there in front of you, that would be very helpful. Um, we're going to be using that this morning. So can you please keep it over to 1 Corinthians, um, that passage that we just had read for us. Have a look at verse 24 of chapter 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Now, reading that, you kind of go, oh, that's a very helpful metaphor and it's a helpful image. It was actually a very helpful image for Corinthians because Corinth was the home of the, uh, I think this is how you say it, the Isthmian Games, uh, which were second to the, the ancient Olympics. This was the biggest sporting event in the known world. Uh, and Corinth was the home of that. And so when he is talking about the games and the athletes, he's talking about something the Corinthians are very, very familiar with. Uh, he, they love sports. They're a sports-loving culture, uh, just like Australia. And so um, he's talking to them in the metaphor of an athlete, and he's making the point that staying a Christian is not something that happens by accident. And he's using this metaphor to make that point. Athletes don't win events by accident. And so staying a Christian doesn't happen by accident. In the same way that an athlete must train if he wants to win the race, so Christians must be disciplined if they're going to stay the course. How do we avoid falling away from the faith? We must have discipline. That is the point of this four-week sermon series that we're doing. How do we avoid falling away from the faith? Christians must be trained. They must be disciplined. You can't be lazy. Staying a Christian doesn't happen by accident. About 100 years ago, uh, there was an author, um, G.K. Chesterton. He's a very well-known Christian author, kind of like a C.S. Lewis, but of the generation beforehand. Uh, in 1910, he wrote a book called What's Wrong with the World? And in that book, uh, there was this line. He said, the Christian ideal has not, been found, sorry, has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. It's very true, I think. It's very, very true. The, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and laid aside. Nobody wants to give it a crack. Uh, and I think that's helpful for us to remember because he was writing this in 1910. He was writing this to the generation that was about to go off to the Great War. He was writing this to the generation that was about to endure the Great Depression. 
this was a, a tried and tested group of people that he was writing this about. And so if this is true of them, then this is probably true of us as well. It's probably true of, of your generation, of my generation, of the generation under me. Uh, if, if, we, if we have failed to be disciplined in the Christian, in the Christian ideal, then, yeah, G.K. Chesterton's words have proved to be true. So Paul is saying that we, we must be disciplined. We must be like an athlete uh, if we want to stay in the Christian race. Have a look at verse 25 again. Everyone who competes in the games, he's talking about the Isthmian games, he go, they go into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. So apparently in the Isthmian games, if you won the race, you got a, a crown of withered celery. Uh, that was your prize, uh, which you know, many of us are thinking that's not a prize at all. You know, <laughs> like Celery is the least uh, appetizing thing. But that was their prize. They, they got a crown of withered celery. But Paul's saying, if that's what these, pe- these people are working so hard so they can have a withered vegetable, we are working hard for eternal life. How much more should we be disciplined in our race than they are in their withered vegetable race. That's the point that Paul is making. And, so, and then Paul goes, even my, I myself have to do this. Have a look at verse 26, 27. Therefore, I do not run like somebody running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Now, this is Paul. You remember that this is Paul talking here, and he's saying, look, I'm an apostle. <laughs> you know, I, I'm a missionary. I, I'm a full-time um, worker for the Lord, and I'm so concerned that I might find myself disqualified from this prize. And I think many people in this room are probably sitting here thinking, I don't have to worry about being disqualified. You know? And, and, and there, is, there is value in having Christian assurance, and I'll get back to that in a second. But Paul is saying, He doesn't want to be found disqualified. And the way that he avoids that is by pursuing discipline. He beats his body. He trains himself like an athlete. Now, the only athlete that I know who has ever even come close to winning uh, Olympic gold is um, Kieran Kabelke, who goes to this church. He's in the 6 p.m. service. Uh, I'm married, well, we're married to cousins, so we're we're actually quite good friends. But he he was a professional rower for about six or seven years um, until recently. And he's, so he won silver at the World Championships. He's won bronze at the World Championships. Here's a photo of him rowing for Australia in Switzerland a few years ago. He's a very, very diligent athlete. And I asked him, just to kind of illustrate this point, I asked him, what, is it, what does it look like for you? Uh, because when, when he um, stopped training, when, it, when he gave up rowing, he was actually on his way to training for the Rio Olympics. And I said, so what, what was your training regime when you were on your way to the Rio Olympics? This is what he told me. So they would have 17 sessions a week, 30 kilometers of rowing a day, 180 kilometers a week, 8,600 kilometers a year, and every year they would make 9.5 million strokes. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, what does a week look like for you? Well, every morning they would wake up at 4, 4.30, they would have their first rowing session where they would row for 20Ks. And then they would come back to the gym and they'd do a 45-minute workout. And then they'd go back on the water and they'd row 10 more Ks. And then they'd go back to the gym and they'd do a two-hour weight session. And then they would go to core and stretching. 
And then after that, they got massages. <laughs> but this is like, I think this is a very helpful image because Paul is trying to say to us here, is your Christian life comparable to that? Are you disciplined like an athlete who is working for a good prize? Is that what your Christian life looks like? Uh, I think that for a lot of us, that's not the case. Uh, we, we think that staying Christian happens by accident. And so we'll attend a church infrequently, we'll attend community group infrequently, or we'll read the Bible infrequently, pray infrequently, love when we feel like it, be hospitable when we feel like it. But Paul is saying that is not how you should be thinking about the Christian life. It is not something that happens by accident. If you want to stay in this race until the end, if you want to gain the prize, you should have discipline. You should be like an athlete. He, he says about himself that he didn't want to be somebody who was found um, running aimlessly or throwing weak punches at nothing. Uh, are you kind of, is, that, is that a fair way to describe your Christian walk? Are you somebody who, who is kind of aimless in your Christian walk? Or are you kind of like throwing weak punches, like you're not really putting in any effort? Paul is warning us against that kind of behavior. That sort of person will not take the prize. Now, I know some of you are probably thinking right now, hold on, what about Christian assurance? What about Christian security? What about that idea that once I'm saved, I'm always saved? Uh, that's a really, really good question because those things are taught in the Bible and they are true. And there is a way that those two, these two things fit together, but I'm going to talk about that next week. So uh, that's an encouragement for you to be here next week. And if you can't be here next week, then you can listen to the sermon online. But what Paul does now, after he spends some time talking about what we should be like, he gives us an example of what we should not be like. So have a look at chapter 10 in your Bible. It says, a warning from Israel's history. So Paul's about to show us, this is how Israel failed to be disciplined and found themselves disqualified. So have a look at chapter 10. And the big point that he's trying to say in these first five verses, they are confusing. The big point that he's trying to make is that Israel is just like the Corinthian church and Israel is just like you and me. So have a look at chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. So again, like I said, this is a little bit strange, but what Paul is saying here is that Israel is just like us. They are our ancestors. They're our heritage if you're a Christian. And like us, they experienced a baptism of some sort. Uh, Their baptism was when they passed through the Red Sea, and when they pass under the cloud. Our baptism is into the name of the Lord Jesus. And then verse 3, they, like us, also had spiritual food. Now, he's talking about their experience when they're in the desert, and um, there was manna and there was quail that God provided for them. We, too, have spiritual food, which is the Lord's Sabbath. It's what we just celebrated then. It's it's, it's feasting on Jesus' body and blood as he's our redemption. Uh, Verse 4, they, like us, had spiritual drink as well. Now, the drink that they had when they were in the desert came from a rock that followed them around, that gave them water. Um, We, too, have a spiritual drink, and that drink is Jesus. Remember, Jesus Jesus describes himself as the spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Israel and us have had similar experiences. Um, they, They were baptized. They had spiritual food. They had spiritual drink. They were the people of God. And yet, have a look at verse 5. Even though that was the case for them, even though they were just like us, 
Nevertheless, God was not pleased with them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So even though they were a part of God's people, they were not disciplined and they found themselves disqualified. And so this is the warning for us. And so what Paul does now is he lists some of their sins, some of the things that they did that made them um, disqualified from the faith. And, And he's warning us, do not be like Israel. Don't be given to these things like Israel. And so he, 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 want, he, he, um, he, he lists some things that we should be avoiding. Now, have a look at verse 6 and verse 11. Verse 6, firstly, it says, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on these evil things as they did. And then verse 11, These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. He's saying these are warnings for you. Look at their example and do the opposite. And for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at these four sins that they did. Uh, the next four weeks, this sermon, the sermon series is looking at the same passage of Scripture again and again and again. And we're zooming in on a particular sin that Israel committed to warn you against committing that sin. And so if you have a look at verse 7, idolatry. Verse 8, sexual immorality. That's what I'm talking about today. Verse 9, testing Christ. And then verse 10, do not grumble. So that, that's, that's what the sermons are about this next four weeks. And the reason that we're doing sexual immorality first rather than idolatry is because on Wednesday night, uh, Patricia Wirikun is coming to speak to us about sexual immorality. She's coming to speak to us about living with sexual integrity. And this is kind of me saying, I really think that you should be at that seminar. Uh, I don't think you... I, I only realized this week, Patricia sent me an email that made me realize how important she is in the world... Uh, for representing Christian sexuality. Uh, she, was, she, she emailed me this week to let me know that she uh, has been in Jerusalem for a conference of worldwide conservative Anglicans, uh, and she's been there presenting papers and lectures about sexuality. Now, if you know anything about what's happening in the Anglican church on the worldwide level, you know sexuality is the hot topic. And she has been the person who's been invited to come and speak. And so it's no exaggeration to say that Patricia Wirikun is the forefront thinker when it comes to Christian sexuality in the world. And she's going to be here on Wednesday night to talk to us. And so I really want to encourage you to be there. But okay, let's have a look at verse 7. Let's zoom in and let's talk about sexual immorality. Lord, help me. Verse, sorry, verse 8. This is what Paul says. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in, 20, and in a day, in a day 23,000 of them died. Now, Paul is referring to a, a story back in Numbers chapter 25. I'll, I'll put that, it's, it's only three verses, so I can just show it to you right now. And this is, what, this is when Israel was in the wilderness, and this is the, the thing that Paul's referring to. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the, man, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women. That's foreign women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before their gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. So that's what Paul's talking about. It's a strange story, sort of. Those Israelite men, they find themselves uh, having sex with Moabite women, and then they follow these Moabite women and go and serve their gods. And Paul is saying... Corinthians, Christians, do not follow the example of the Israelites. 
So let's break this down. Firstly, what is sexual immorality? Going back to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul, Paul uses a special word. He uses a technical word to describe sexual immorality. It's the word in Greek, porneia. Porneia. Uh, it's where we get our word pornography from. It's the, it's the kind of group, Greek root word, and it refers to this. I'll give you a definition. It's any form of sexual stimulation outside of a lifelong relationship between a man and a woman who have publicly committed to one another in marriage. So any form of sexual stimulation outside of marriage between a man and a woman, which is lifelong. And so that, that includes verbal stimulation. So if somebody makes a, a flirtatious comment to you, that in, includes visual stimulation. So if somebody wears a revealing shirt or when they you know, put photos on the internet or something like that, uh, it refers to physical stimulation. So somebody who, uh, in, boyfriend and girlfriend who engage with each other sexually uh, before they're married, or it, it refers to virtual stimulation. It, it is all those things. Porneia is a, is a catch-all kind of phrase. It's kind of like the word sport. It, it doesn't refer to any one sport in particular. It refers to all sexual activity outside of marriage uh, between a man and a woman. So that's what porneia is. That's what sexual immorality is. Uh, and I, I recognize that when I kind of give you that definition, and Paul says that we should not be given to sexual immorality, a lot of people in our society will balk at that, and they'll say, that's ridiculous. Like the bit about the man and the woman. Uh, our society has, has rejected that concept that sexuality should be between a man and a woman. Our society has also rejected the idea that sexual activity should be in a lifelong marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, that's something else that our society has said that's ridiculous. And our society will say us, our culture will say us, are uh, you typical Christian prudes who deny the sexual cravings that we all instinctively have? But I think that that accusation is just completely ungrounded. Because the Bible is actually pro-sex. It's pro-sexuality. And a large portion of the Bible is devoted to talking about sex. So let me just explain this to you really straightforward. Song of Songs, that is a full book in the Bible that talks about sex. Uh, It's it's almost embarrassingly so, (laughs) if you go and read that book. Uh, If you think that my discussion and my frankness in talking about this is is over the top, then I would encourage you to open up Song of Songs and realize that I'm actually being quite tame. Uh, Proverbs 5 to 7 is mostly about sexual temptation. We'll come back to that in a a few minutes. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, his most famous and probably his most important teaching, he addresses sexuality explicitly and in detail. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, which we're reading right now, Uh, sexuality is one of the huge themes of the whole letter. This is one of Paul's longest letters. I think it is Paul's longest letter. 16 chapters. And he spends a lot of his time in this letter talking about sexuality. And that's not to mention the hundreds, if not thousands, of other time that the Bible talks about sexuality. Uh, Western society had to go through a sexual revolution in the 60s to be able to talk about sexuality. The Bible has been talking about sexuality for thousands of years, and unashamedly so. This is a part of who we are. Sexuality is a part of who we are, and so it is very important that the Bible talks about it. And the Bible doesn't communicate that sex is ungodly or that it's unclean, even though that might be the message that the church in history has propagated or, or accidentally taught by its actions. The Bible sees sex as good. Uh, Just a a reminder that the first command that God ever gave was to be fruitful and increase in number. Uh, As Patricia Werrikin says, that's not an instruction to eat fruit and do maths. That's God saying, go and have sex. That is his first instruction. 
Okay, so what does Paul have to say about sexual immorality? Well, firstly, it's worth realizing that um, the 21st century culture is not uniquely promiscuous. Uh, cultures have been promiscuous since the dawn of time, and Corinth is an incredible example of that. Incredible is probably not the right, not the right word. It's an infamous example of promiscuity. Uh, there was actually a phrase coined in the first century to Corinthianize someone, which means to school them in sexual immorality. The Corinthians were known for their sexual immorality. They had temples devoted to prostitutes. Uh, they, they, they were a, a seaport, and so all of those kinds of ideas that you have about a seaport and the kind of promiscuous things that um, sea officers do, that, that was true of what was happening in Corinth. And so Paul writes a letter to them, and he deals with sexual immorality in great detail. Uh, so firstly, we'll look at... And the first thing that Paul wants to say is that your sexuality should be informed by the gospel. Your sexuality should be informed by the gospel. So we're going to have a look back at chapter 6, where Paul um, spends some time talking about sexual immorality. So if you've uh, got a Bible there, go back to chapter 6. I'm also going to chuck it up on the screen, so that'll be helpful. So in chapter 6, Paul has just he's listed a, a bunch of different lifestyles that will prevent somebody from entering the kingdom of God. He's made a list of those things. And first and foremost was sexual immorality. And then after he says that, he says this. That is what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul wants sexuality to be informed by the gospel. It's, it's a very kind of clear message. He's saying that Jesus has washed away your sins, so you don't need to live in that sexual immorality anymore. He's saying, why are you lumping on the sin that Jesus has already washed away? Let me give you a quick analogy, and I know that some of you will see this before. But when Jesus died for us on the cross, let me just mark my page first. When Jesus died, this, this, was, this was us before Jesus. Our sin was on us. Sexual immorality was a part of who we are. And then when Jesus died for us on the cross, he took at his perfection and he tainted it with our sinfulness and he endured the wrath of God so that we could be without our sinfulness. And so Paul is saying here, if that is the case, then why are you just chucking that sinfulness back on yourselves? Why are you living as if sexual immorality is a part of who you are when it is not a part of who you are anymore? Sexual immorality has been done away with. You have been washed. You have been cleaned. You have been sanctified. And so live as somebody who is holy, right, and pure. That's the analogy that Paul is talking about here. And I think that is very important for us to grasp. Because I think in our society, sexual sin, and particularly amongst Christians, this is something that we feel so much shame about. We feel so much shame about our sexual immorality. And I'm willing to say that I think this is a problem for everyone. I don't think this is the kind of finger-pointing sort of deal. I think this is the problem for everyone. And I can't write a talk about sexual immorality without realizing that I have sexual failures in my own life. So don't, don't think of this as me waving the finger at you and saying, naughty, naughty, naughty. This is me saying, we should take hold of the gospel. We have been washed. We have been made pure. And if that is the case, then we should not live in our sexual immorality anymore. Um, some of you might have been watching the World Cup lately. Um, lots of sports illustrations this, this week. It, I just thought it was appropriate. But some of you might have been watching the World Cup, and you might have seen this, this young man. His name's Daniel Azani. 19 years old. He's the youngest player in the World Cup. 
and he's playing for Australia, and he's doing a great job. Um, we haven't won yet, but he, <laughs> he's, still, he's still playing a solid game of football. Uh, Daniel Azani, interesting guy, 19 years old. He was born in 1999 uh, in Iran, and he came to Australia as a, young, as a young kid. And so he had the choice as to whether he would play for Iran or pray, play for Australia. He chose to play for Australia. Now, I want you to just do a little mind experiment for a, minute, for a minute with me here. Imagine that Iran was playing, for Australia, playing against Australia. You know, they're, they're up against each other. And, and Daniel Azani is wearing the Australian jersey. But he runs out onto the field, um, and he's playing for Australia initially. But then after a little while, he, he starts tackling the Australian players. And he starts shooting at the Australian goalie. You'd be a little bit confused. The coach would be a little bit confused. He'd be calling Daniel Azani over to the side and be like, mate, you're not on that team anymore. You're an Australian. You need to play for Australia. And that's the point that Paul is making in this passage. You're not a sinner anymore. You are a righteous person. And so live in your righteousness. That is what Paul is saying in this passage. And, and Paul has two, when he talks about living without sexual immorality, there's two big things that he wants to say in 1 Corinthians. So we're going to have a look at those things now. Um, and I think it's really insightful that when you read what Paul says about sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians, and then when you compare it with the Proverbs, Paul definitely had his scroll open to Proverbs when he was writing 1 Corinthians. Because he, he says very, very similar things there. So we're going to have a look at both of them this morning. The first thing that Paul says is that we should flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. He says, run from sexual immorality. Escape from it. Uh, f- just bolt. Get away, from, get away from those sexual stimulations, those temptations, the visual, the verbal, the physical. Get, just get away from those things. Age, uh, far, far from the age-old youth group question of how far can I go, Paul says, no, you're asking the wrong question. When sexual immorality presents itself, you run the other way. You don't see how close you can get to it. It's not like that game that kids play at the beach where they try to run to the shore without getting wet. That is not how we should think of ourselves with sexual immorality. Um, Proverbs says something very similar. The, the, the first nine chapters of Proverbs is, is a father speaking to a son and encouraging the son uh, to pursue wisdom. And one of the things that he says is avoid the adulterous women. And the, the, the adulterous woman, this is what he says. He kind of imagines um, uh, the young man kind of loitering outside of a promiscuous woman's house, just kind of standing around, not, not, not going in, just kind of toying with the idea. And this is what, this is what the, the father says. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? The answer is obviously no, you idiot. You cannot do those things. And so don't think that you can. This is like, it's actually really kind of, uh, you know, you think of the rhetoric here. He's actually saying, don't be an idiot. Don't be foolish. You have to run the other way from sexual immorality. You can't flirt with it. You have to get out of there. Remember, sexual immorality, like I said, it is any form of sexual stimulation outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. So verbal, visual, physical, virtual, any, any form. So, so what does this mean for us? Well, it means like don't go to that cafe that you know has the attractive barista, whether it is a male or a female. You shouldn't be doing that. You have to run the other way. You're scooping fire onto your lap with that sort of stuff. 
Don't meet, to one, don't meet one-on-one with that flirtatious colleague of yours. Don't go away for the weekend with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, just the two of you. That's not, that's not running the other way. That's standing at the door of the promiscuous woman and kind of, you know, seeing what happens. We shouldn't be doing those sorts of things. Stop watching the TV shows that you know will have explicit scenes in them. Just stop watching them. People will say, no, I, I can deal with it. I, I'm okay, I'm okay, I can do with it. No, no, no. You're heaping burning coals into your lap every time you turn on that show. You should delete those apps on your phone that tempt you. So whether it's Instagram or or Tinder or Grindr or Facebook or whatever it is, this application is probably more for the 6 o'clock service, but some of you, it, it works for you as well. It's actually a really important question to ask. How do you, how do you flee from sexual immorality in this age when we have a phone that has got pornography everywhere we go? Uh, I know that pornography is a struggle for many people in our society, both men and women. And so I think it's actually something you need to think very hard about. Where will you let yourself use your smartphone? Where will you let your kids use their smartphones? You need to think about that. And there's about a thousand other things that I could list because we live in a sexualized culture. But the, 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 the instruction is for us to flee. We have to run the other way. We have to get away from it. And for those of you who kind of sit here and you go, this isn't me, remember that in, in chapter 10, Paul says, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Uh, there's, there's a warning in here for somebody who kind of sits upright and says, you know, I don't really struggle with this stuff. Paul says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. We are all subject to this because sexuality is a part of all of our lives. The other thing that Paul says is, number two, he says, embrace your spouse. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2 and 3. Since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should just fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Uh, Proverbs says something very similar. Chapter 5. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts satisfy you always, and may you ever be intoxicated with her love. I told you I wasn't being the weird, the weird one. <laughs> now, I realize that what I, by reading these verses, I raise a lot of questions. You know, what about the single people? Uh, what about, um, yeah, you know, the single people, those who are here and they hear this and they kind of go, yeah, easy for you to say married guy. Um, so let me just deal with those things before we move on. Firstly, this proverb was probably written to a single person. This is a a father figure speaking to his son who is yet to be married. And so he's saying, embrace the wife of your youth who you're not married to yet. He's saying this is actually written to a single person. And what what about Corinthians? Well, remember that in Corinthians, Paul is saying, you should, husbands be given to your wives, wives be given to your husbands. Remember that Paul himself is a single man. He's a single man, and then right after he says that, he's going to instruct the, the church in Corinth that it's actually better to be single. Have a look at the verse just after the one we just read. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, single. But each of you has his own gift from God. One has this gift, and another has that. So yes, okay, you might be single, and it might not work for you to embrace your spouse, but I think that this is still a helpful command for many of us. 
Remember that in the Bible, singleness is not, it's not less than marriage. It's just alternative to marriage, as Paul says here. Uh, having said all that, I think that most of us, well, many of us in this room are married. Uh, and even those of us who aren't married, some of us will intend to get married. So for most of us, this is a way that we can be fighting sexual immorality. We should be embracing our spouse. Um, now, it does, unfortunately, it does need to be said that this is not a license for coercion. These verses don't mean that you can go to your spouse, hey, you better, you better um, have sex with me tonight, or you know, I might go looking elsewhere. That is not appropriate, and that is not what Paul is saying here. It, it, unfortunately, it needs to be said that that's not what these verses are about. What these verses are about is that we should, husband and wife, be helping each other with this. We should be helping each other with our sexual sin and our sexuality. We should be talking about sexuality with our spouses, which I know is hard. And that's why you need to make a discipline of it. Remember, this whole passage is in the context of discipline. So you should make a discipline of this. All right, let me just wrap up. How do we avoid falling out of the race? We need to adopt discipline in our Christian lives to avoid sexual immorality. We have been washed of all of our sexual failure, and now we can flee from it. Now, I recognize that for many of us, this is a struggle. Uh, Male and female, I recognize that this is hard for many of us. And I want to encourage you to find help, uh, to find somebody to speak to. Whether that means that before you leave here today, you pull somebody aside and you have a private chat with them. I know that that might not work for many of you because you're here with your families. And so I want to say that uh, feel free to pop into the office at any point during the week and chat to one of the pastors or myself. Um, it, it might mean sending a text just in deck time, sending a text to somebody who you trust to say, hey, can we catch up and have a coffee? There's something I need to talk about. Um, uh, tomorrow I'm going to send out an email with a bunch of resources that are helpful for you. Um, so books or websites or blog sites or anything like that, that that might be helpful for you to pursue help. And I also want to say, come on Friday night, or come on Wednesday night to hear Dr. Patricia Werikun talk about living with sexual integrity in this world. Please find help. Don't, please don't let the enemy talk you out of confronting this sin. Something I want to say before I finish, I find so many times when you're sitting in church, you feel the conviction of the Spirit, but then by the time you walk out the door... You're distracted. Do you know how much the devil loves that? When Jesus talks about the the bird coming and snatching the seed up before it can grow, that's exactly what he's talking about. Please don't let the enemy talk you out of confronting this sin because it'll rot rot away your faith, and I've seen it done that to so many of my friends. Your sin may be great, but his grace is more. Let me pray. Loving Father, we're so thankful that you have given us purity. That our sins have been washed away by the work of Jesus and now we can live in righteousness. Help us, Lord, to flee from sexual immorality. Help us to embrace our spouses. Help us to be disciplined in our Christian pursuits. Amen.